Why Should Liberals Read Shakespeare? Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Squire. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and today I'm speaking with Sarah Squire. She has published a range of academic articles on subjects from Shakespeare to zombies. Most recently, she published an article on Cosmos of Taxes on women's economic security and the history of property law. She's also running One Fell Swoop, a reading group on Liberty Fund. Sarah, our question today is why should liberals read Shakespeare? Oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna leap right in. Then we're just we're going right. Yes. To the, okay, I was kind of waiting for more of a more of an unpacking of that. Um, I was actually thinking about this in the car today because I don't know if you saw it, but Mike Humer had a long Facebook post uh, a couple of days ago. That the philosopher Mike Humer had a, a, a couple of a Facebook post a couple of days ago about why he doesn't think Shakespeare is that great and pretty much why he'd sort of pitch him in the bin if given the opportunity. Um, and, and so I'm feeling, I think, a little, a, a little reluctant to say people should read Shakespeare. Uh, you should read what, what you like. You should read what moves you. You should read what uh, what strikes you and what's going to stick with you. But sometimes you don't know what that's going to be until you try it, right? And sometimes you don't know what that's going to be until you try it repeatedly over a considerable amount of time. Um, my best story for that is that the first time that I read King Lear, I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18. And I just didn't think very much of it. I, I thought it was kind of chaotic. I didn't have a lot of sympathy for the characters. I had a lot of... Um, a lot of kinds of complaints that that actually that that Mike Humor echoed in his recent Facebook post. Um, I read it again in graduate school um, years later, not quite ten years later, but years later, um, when I was starting to see the first signs of my parents' aging, um, and it became a completely different play for me then. Um, rereading it then, when I had children of my own it became a third completely different, deeper and richer play. And reading it now when I'm in my 50s and feeling my own signs of, well, that hip hurts and, you know, I sneezed and threw my back out and all of the other things that, that happen uh, as we get to be, uh, to be in our 50s and watching my children uh, become adults. Um, it's it's a it's an again a different play and a deeper and a richer play and so I I kind of my wish for like Mike humor and for people who are listening to this this uh, podcast and thinking well you can't make me read Shakespeare if I don't want to read Shakespeare right I can't um, I think he's great I think the plays are wonderful but also I think that um, one of the things that makes them wonderful is that um, they they deepen and and broaden as we ourselves deepen and broaden as people, they become richer um, as there's more, more to who we are as people. So I kind of wanted to start by saying, you know, um, in, in the spirit of someone who spent a long time as a kid being told that I should really like professional sports, um, didn't learn to like <laughs> professional sports until maybe, I don't know, uh, probably in my thirties. Um, you know, you learn to love what you learn to love when you learn to love it. Right. Um, and uh, 
you know, I think uh, weirdly we do a lot of damage to how people feel about Shakespeare by making everyone read three or four Shakespeare plays in high school, which is probably too young for most of them. Um, anyway, I, I digress. Um, what do let me so let me rephrase the question. What can uh, classical liberals? What can people who are interested in a free society? What can people who are interested in an open society learn from reading Shakespeare? Is that is that a fair kind of reapproach to the question? Um, I think that one of the things um, I think that one of the things that that we can learn is that great lesson from the classical world. Nothing human is alien to me. Right. Shakespeare has um, within the plays a remarkable capacity for sympathy. Um, and I mean, when I say that, I mean a sort of a Smithian sympathy that that's really empathy. Um, but the word hadn't been invented yet. Um, a sympathy with people from. Around the world, from all kinds of walks of life, in all kinds of professions, in all kinds of of positions and often in the most unexpected places. I was just re yesterday was just rereading Comedy of Errors, which is a Shakespeare play that nobody really cares about. Um, it's a very very early comedy. It's it's a it's a, a take on a a classical comedy by by Plautus. Uh, if you don't know it, there's a, a um, there are twin brothers who are who are uh, who employ twin servants who, in their childhood as infants, are separated by a shipwreck. So one son and one servant go off in one direction, and one son and the other servant go off in the other direction. And then, as adults, one uh, son and one servant set off to see if they can find their their missing brothers. The other ones have no idea that they exist. It's all very raucous. But there's also this deep, sensitive heart to the play. Early on, one of the brothers say, says, the one who sets out to, to look for his missing brother says, it's like I'm a drop of water in an ocean and I'm trying to seek another drop of water, right? Just looking in this wide world for the person who I know matches me, right? And that... I was so struck by the by the loneliness in that and by the by the beauty in that in the middle of this play that's full of like stupid puns, uh, raunchy puns and people getting hit over the head. Right. It, it's a very, very slapstick comedy. But what makes it more interesting than that is this human heart that's at the middle of it and that that I find at the core of of all of Shakespeare's work. So, uh, first of all, I'd love to sit here, you and Mike Humor, argue about Shakespeare. I don't argue that would make with my, my whole day. <laughs> I might want to have a drink with Mike Humor, but I don't argue. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> but I have to admit, like two things: I love Shakespeare. Um, that's number one. So I have a bias towards liking it and thinking it it's useful. But I also, I have to admit that when I think of classical liberalism, I do not think of Shakespeare. <laughs> That's not the first person that comes to mind, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. <laughs> um, so is there a general blind spot for classical liberals on looking to pre-enlightenment authors, or is it just a Shakespeare thing? And can you remind our listeners what you mean by pre-enlightenment? Um, so, okay, so I think that there is, is a tendency in classical liberalism to think of um, 
classical liberalism and of the ideas that we think are most important, uh, freedom of the individual, uh, free markets, free trade, free expression, all of that, all of those good things that start with the word free that we care about so much. We tend to think of those as coming into birth in 1776 with uh, the conveniently simultaneous appearance of the Declaration of Independence, sorry, Canadian listeners, um, and Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Right. And that sort of one two punch of political theory and uh, free market um, uh, economic theory kind of getting born right um, in that same moment makes that a really tempting line before which we tend to think perhaps that not that much exists. Um, That is. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of stuff exists, not that much that is of import to classical liberals exists. I think that that has changed somewhat um, since, you know, 20 odd years ago when I started going on about this stuff in public. Um, but I do think we, we are still biased in that way to to ignore the pre-enlightenment, by which I mean kind of pre-Smith, pre, you know, 17th century and earlier works. Um, so we're, we sort of tend tend to not think about them. Um, as I've said, probably to the point of enormous tedium, uh, over the years, I think that that cuts out, um, a lot of enormously important work for us. And it cuts out a lot of enormously important literature for us. Mm-hmm. And to build on that, some people like the public choice giant, Gordon Tullock argued that we don't have much to learn from the pre alignment authors. You once wrote that he thought, and I quote, while history provides useful examples of public choice problems, pre alignment people lacked what I, what you call, or in your text that I will call, a public choice sensibility that would have allowed them to really understand those problems and write about them compellingly. Can you talk a bit about that skepticism and why you don't agree with it? So I think... Um, I think that it's very easy when you start to go kind of spelunking into the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries and earlier, right? Um, It's very easy if you go looking for people talking about economics in the way that we would talk about economics now or talking about political theory in the ways that we would talk about political theory now with the vocabulary that we use, right? With the same sort of, you know particularly with economics, with the mathematical underlying, with the, with the full theoretical working out of these things. Um, I think it's really easy to sort of spelunk in and think that there's just not stuff there. Um, you're not going to find people talking specifically about, say, public choice theory in uh, the 16th century because public choice theory hadn't been invented yet. But my contention is that if public choice theory describes something that is innate in the human condition. And if economics describes something that is innate in the human condition, and I think that they do, you're going to find those things back as early as you find people. They're going to be talking about them in different ways. They're going to use different vocabulary to do it. Um, Their objects of study are going to be different. But if you are reading Shakespeare and you're thinking about public choice, for example, and you're reading the opening scene of Henry V, right, where Henry V is having this discussion with the clergy about whether or not he can, um, 
whether or not he can make justified claim to go to war against France. And the clergy are like, well, you know, we can cut him this very nice deal where, you know, we were going to tax the crown, but we're not going to tax the crown. And we're going to he's going to give us money and we're going to support the war with France. And it's a nice little bit of quid pro quo and a nice little bit of log rolling, Gordon. Um, and, uh, and it's very, very, very public choice. And I think very interesting um, for people who are interested in topics of economics and topics of, of public choice. And, you know, and I'm not going to say that every Shakespeare play is like laden with examples like that, but there are plenty there. Um, and, and it happens to be well-written and it happens to be exciting. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's evidence to me what it is, um, is finding, uh, finding the things like this in earlier works is evidence to me of how right the public choice theory is how right Smith's ideas about human sympathy and about, uh, you know, how markets work and so on, how correct they are, because they're not just correct. Now I'm going to sound like Pete Becky, right? They're not just correct in the 18th century. They're not just correct in the 19th century. They're not just correct in the 20th century. They're correct for a long time before that, right? Because we are humans doing human stuff. Right. And if economics is, in fact, the study of human action, right, that's going to apply regardless of what century you're talking about. So um, in reading your work on this, um, and again, to build off what you're just saying, um, I love the idea that Shakespeare is actually criticizing his current government through through a perspective that like I just through a perspective of his writing. And that's something that I, I haven't really heard about in the past. I haven't really thought about it. So I did one year of English, uh, English major at university before realizing it wasn't for me and immediately going to political science. Uh, <laughs> in that one year, no one told me <laughs> that we'd read a lot of Shakespeare, that he was uh, doing some public choicey stuff, you know. <laughs> it was not presented to me uh, at all uh, when I was reading about him. It was more about, uh, he's looking at society in general, but his actual criticism of leadership of government that's not something that i personally was exposed to very much so i would love for you to tell me more about that if uh, if you can and and just uh, tell us a little bit about what public choice is since we've been talking about it um just a very quick sort of sentence on that just so everybody's i mean if you wanted somebody to tell you what public choice is you should have invited an economist people are always inviting me to do things like talk about shakespeare and they're like sarah tell us all about public choice i'm like nope not not gonna do that so i am really not qualified to talk about public choice except to say that the thing that i find interesting and the thing that that i understand uh about public choice is that the argument it makes is essentially that people in their political um, in their political standpoints, right, in their political characters, right, whether they're voting, which is what public choice looks at because of the time and the, the place when it was written, or whether they're, you know, monarchs and advisors in a Shakespeare play, those people who are acting politically are the same people who are acting privately, and they are as driven by um, personal and group interests in matters of politics as they are in private matters, right? And we can't expect, we basically can't expect people to be any better humans just because they're doing politics at the moment than mm -hmm. we can expect them to be when they're, you know, uh, uh, stealing our parking space at Target or whatever, 
mean, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, if we're if we're irretrievably fallen, right? We're going to be irretrievably fallen in politics as much as we are <laughs> in uh, in the Target parking lot, and I, and I think that that matters, <laughs> right? Um, but I also think, I mean, I also think that one of the things. Um, And I don't know whether this is public choice or whether this is just sort of general hanging out with economists and political theorists and political scientists for a lot of years. But um, thinking about sort of institutions um, and uh, not only institutions as as things that make choices, right, but institutions as things that are no less inclined to be flawed than the humans that comprise them, right? Right. And I think this is really important for Shakespeare. Um, a friend of mine, Paulina uh, Hughes, who's a um, professor uh, at Oxford, has done a lot of work on um, the succession crisis in Elizabethan England. How much of this do you want me to go on about? Oh, as much okay. as you like. I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> so Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne for basically Shakespeare's entire life. Um, and... As he is aging, she is aging, and she has declined to name a successor. She spent most of her um, her uh, her monarchy, uh, she spent sort of playing a game, well, maybe I'll get married, and maybe I won't get married, and maybe I'll marry this guy, and maybe I'll marry that guy, and maybe there will be uh, what was called an heir of the body, right? So maybe she will have a child, and that just solves the whole succession problem immediately. Um you know, by the 1600s, it's pretty clear that Elizabeth is not going to get married. And if she does get married, she's certainly too old to have an heir of the body at that point. And she's still declining to name a successor. Um, this is enormously important for a lot of reasons, um, largely because uh, England has not had a really great history when uh, the succession is not clear. Um, and also because in um, the times through which Shakespeare is living, when the crown is passed on, it's often passed from Protestant to Catholic to Protestant, which then changes the entire religious makeup of the nation and makes one religion illegal and the other one legal suddenly. And then you wake up a couple years later and it's flipped and it's it's all very unreliable and really terrifying. Right. And. Um, Paulina has, has, I think, usefully pointed to the ways in which the fears of this, the, the instability um, in the, the institution of monarchical succession that are, that are sort of highlighted towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, just are everywhere in Shakespeare's plays, just everywhere. Who's coming next? Who's going to be the next king on the throne? What happens if we don't know? What if the next guy is a rotter? Um, what you know? What what do we do? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Right? And and I think that that's um, I think that that's really pressing for Shakespeare in an important way. But I think it also resonates enormously with our political context now, right? Especially. I think as voters feel less and less as if their vote or their action has, at least in the, I can't speak for Canada, but feel feel less and less as if their vote has any um, actual effect on the outcome of the election. Um, 
where there are uh, real concerns, whether you're left or right, um, about what happens if the other side gets in, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, just a fear that, um, you know, that, that chaos has come again after, after the next guy comes in or after the old guy, who you may not like, but at least you've gotten used to him, right, uh, <laughs> goes out. Right. And, and I, to me, that feels like we're at a very, we're at a very good moment to be reading uh, Shakespeare's uh, political histories, a very good moment for that. I think that leads in perfectly to my next question that I was going to ask you. And I didn't really think about what was going in the U S as a, as a Elizabethan style <laughs> succession is you. It totally is. You're right. That's so, that's so interesting. <laughs> so uh, my next question was how it's all relevant to us today. You mentioned in some of your writing that reading Shakespeare would give us insight into big issues we have on topics like immigration, government growth, and things like that. Uh, but it just seems so long ago. <laughs> like, how could it possibly be relevant to us today? I really would love to hear from you on that. Uh, and specifically, maybe even on topics like immigration yeah. or growth and other, any other topics that are interesting to you on the works of Shakespeare. So one of the things people like to quote a lot is is that line about the past is a, is a is another country. They do things differently there. Right. And, and <laughs> yes, that's true. But also, you know, folks is folks. Um, and, yeah. and and humans are going to human. Right. And we're going to be jealous and we're going to be petty and we're going to be honorable and we're going to be better than you can ever hope us to be. And we're going to be so much worse than you ever thought we possibly could be. And we're going to be dumb and we're going to be brave and, and we're going to be all of these things. And so, yes, I mean, yeah, Shakespeare's very far away, but also, you know, he's he's right next door in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, you know, go through a bad breakup, right? And you've got Shakespeare there going, love is merely a madness, right? Um, or, and, or uh, you know, fall in love and you've got Beatrice saying to Benedict there, I think that there is nothing in the world I love so well as you is not that strange, right? Um and and these are things that uh, these are things that that translate over over time, right? Um, Iago's frustration at always coming in second or third behind Othello and Cassio, and damn it, he just can't get he just can't get in the room where it happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> willing to collaborate with Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, amazing <laughs> call me we went to the same college right we can talk it out uh, I love um, it. <laughs> but you know so there's this there's this human core that i think i think cuts across the the distance right and the distance of of language and the distance of a different political context and and the distance of all those things there's this you know what shakespeare's really good at uh, it, to me i think is human beings who feel human, right? And I think that's one of the reasons that his plays are updated so often, right? Wrenched out of the century uh, in which they're set and, and set in the, the 19th, 20th, 21st, 24th century, right? Um, I mean, they're quoted on, uh, the plays are quoted on Star Trek all the time, right? 
I know, which it's is so great. exciting. You're better than me jumping on, I uh, is, I believe, the line. Um, right? Yes, that's right. And, you know, You've never read him in the original no, thing. No, 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 no. One day. Maybe it's a retirement project. Um, but so, so, you know, yes, the past is very, very far away, but also the power of literature, the power of, of literature when it's working well and when Pache Mike humor, we find the stuff that we connect with. And I'm sure Mike's got stuff he connects with, even if it's not Shakespeare, right? But when we find the stuff that we connect with and we find the words that 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 hit home, those centuries between us and the writer just disappear, right? And and I think that that's that's really important. And so so there's that. But there are also some of these preoccupations that that are very similar, right? We talked about the some of the public choice stuff. We talked about these moments when when politicians are making kind of backdoor deals that that uh, that are are suspect and that are going to you know cause a lot of problems for the everyman, right? Who's always the one who's who's having problems, right? Um, but there's a there's a, a a play that we we now know is it's sort of a, a play written by committee um, called Sir Thomas More. Um, Shakespeare wrote several scenes in it, though he's not responsible for the whole play. Um, it's interesting when you've read enough Shakespeare, the Shakespeare scenes just like jump out at you. It's 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 like somebody popping out of a cake. It's like here's Shakespeare. So it's obvious that it's him. Um, Wow, which cool. is which is fun, um, but one of his one of the scenes that he wrote is a, a speech by Sir Thomas More, who's being pressured by people to to boot um, some. I'm sorry, does that that probably doesn't mean the same thing in Canadian? Is it to kick some some uh, French uh, Huguenot uh, immigrants out of England because literally they're taking our jobs, right? Um, and more uh, gives a beautiful defense of the the need to allow immigration for work, um, and it's one that uh, you know I wish I was going to say you could read in any paper today, but I'm going to say I wish you could read it in any paper today. The arguments <laughs> are the ones that we should be making in any paper today. One of which is if you kick them out, what happens when people decide to kick you out? Where are you going to go now that you've made the world inhospitable for immigration and inhospitable for people who need to move or want to move to make a better lives for themselves, right? Think about what you're doing to the world as a whole and not just about your most immediate context of your most immediate problem, right? It's a beautiful scene. Very powerful. Well, I love it. Me too. <laughs> I think Me it's too. great. And I never knew about it before reading uh, what you wrote about it a while ago and then rereading it now. So thanks for putting it out there into the universe. Hopefully more people Yeah, I was, I was um, blown away by it. Um, <laughs> I hadn't read that play at all until a couple of years ago and I was, I was blown away. I don't know. It even <laughs> exists. <laughs> so before we go to break, um, I'd love for you to tell us about this amazing and comprehensive reading group called One Fell Swoop that you have going on at Liberty Fund right now. And for those of you listening to this potentially after it's over, I'm sure if you go to, to Asmuth Works, Liberty Fund, VRG's virtual reading groups or any sort of reading group going on at all, at any one time you'll find Sarah there reading something on Shakespeare or somebody else that's super interesting uh, in literature. So, uh, but right now you're 
the one you're working on is called One Fell Swoop. I'd love to hear Right. About. So One Fell Swoop is the kind of thing that happens when um, I have too much caffeine at the office. And <laughs> I had too much caffeine one day and I said, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to do a three plus year long reading group where we just read a Shakespeare play a month until we're done with them? And <laughs> happily, I work at the kind of place where people said, you're right. That would be a great idea. Do the thing. So we're doing the thing. Um, it's an open uh, reading group. So you can pop in whenever you want. Uh, you can come in and do 10 plays. You can come in and do one play and then come back and do a year later and do another one. Um, you can come in for plays you haven't read before. Um, you can come in for your favorite. You can do it however you like. Um, and uh, we, we're we not trying to do a, a deep and intensive read on each play. We spend an hour and a half together once a month pulling at some of the, the loose threads in, in various plays and, and seeing what we come up with. So um, the Monday before uh, Yanksgiving, uh, <laughs> American Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to be doing the Comedy of Errors, which is why I was just rereading it. Um, and then yes. in mid-December, uh, rather than doing a play, because I know how busy everybody is uh, in December, um, we're going to look at um, Shakespeare's long narrative poem, Venus and Adonis. Um, and then I don't remember what comes after that, but there's there's a bunch. Um, and in March, of course, Julius Caesar. Love it. <laughs> people can find more information about those virtual reading groups by going to any of the Liberty Fund websites and, and searching for virtual reading groups or searching for One Fell Swoop and Liberty Fund or, you know, find me on Facebook and ask me and I'll throw you a link, right? Or, or if you have links, we'll we'll also add podcast, throw up a link there. <laughs> Yes, we're going to, we'll also add it like uh, in the episode notes for this okay. episode. So uh, with that, we will go to break and we'll talk to you in a little bit. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Vincent Geloso, and Joe Aragona. Remember to follow us on Facebook and X and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. I'm speaking with Sarah Squire today, and now I want to turn to talking more specifically about the works of Shakespeare and why you think they're useful for classical liberals. But first, I want to talk to you about one man we're both big fans of, Adam Smith. Uh, you wrote an excellent piece for Adam Smith Works talking about a topic that had me giggling. Um, Adam Smith slip up uh, when quoting Shakespeare from memory um, and the potential significance of this. It seems he accidentally changes one word, but you don't think it's quite that accidental, perhaps? Or if it is accidental, uh, what does it really mean that he's making that mistake? Um, I love Adam Smith's stories. I love stories about Adam Smith making mistakes because he's hilarious. And the fact that I heard a story once about him like, going to um, coffee with somebody at somebody's house 
and dipping like a piece of paper in his coffee instead of like a cookie because he was so lost in thoughts thinking about something. And then the lady of the house was just so freaked there's, out. And there's another one who just sort of takes the sugar ball and starts eating sugar cubes out of the sugar ball. I just find adorable. <sighs> I just would love to have him. Like, I'd love to have a beer with that man, but I don't know. Maybe one day. <laughs> uh, but if you could talk more about that, I'd love sure. to. Sure. So it. this was a piece that looked at two uh, errors, misquotes of, of Shakespeare in in Smith's work. The the first is uh, a, a misquote of Hamlet. He we're getting a little inside baseball here. Uh, he's quoting. Um, uh, he quotes Smith writes that Hamlet says the old king dies with all his sins upon his head, unanointed, unannealed. Um, and he gets a couple things wrong there. First of all, it's not Hamlet who says it. It's the ghost of the dead king. Right. So it's it's the ghost of old Hamlet, not young Hamlet, who says it. Um but second of all, uh, the, the ghost doesn't say unanointed, unannealed. He says unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, right? And, and I think the reason that uh, Smith makes the error is, is actually an interesting and really good and admirable one. I think that um, Smith has Shakespeare so much in his mental toolbox Shakespeare is just so much part of like the furniture of Adam Smith's mind that he's quoting it without bothering to get up um, and go to the shelf and like look up this bit of Hamlet. He just <laughs> knows it, right? And he he changes it because uh, he I, I think his brain thinks unhouseled, unanointed, unannealed. You've got this nice string of of um, words that start with UN of negatives, right? And and it sounds better in his brain than unhouseled, disappointed, unannealed, right? Um, and then there's another moment where he, he talks about um, how we enjoy seeing Iago punished at the end of Othello, when in fact, uh, we, we don't see Iago punished at the end of Othello. And it's one of the, it's one of kind of the, the frustrations of the play. And I think that's a very telling uh, thing that we all, sort of wish we got to see Iago punished and <laughs> maybe Smith and the 18th century in general, which is known for rewriting Shakespeare to have a more kind of a, a regularized ending and a more politically smooth kind of an action. Um, I wonder whether that's sort of a wish for more order than Shakespeare leaves us with in, in those plays. But but in both of those cases, I think it's it's weirdly the mistakes are because Smith is so good at Shakespeare and so familiar with Shakespeare, right? If he was less, um, if he was less steeped in Shakespeare's work, he would get up, pull Shakespeare off the shelf, and check the quote, right? If he was me, he'd mm -hmm. Google it real quick while on the podcast, sure that he got <laughs> it right. Um, but he's he's so he's so steeped in it, right? Um, that that uh, it just comes to him. Right. And I think these are these are sort of moments in his work when we see how um, how very, very deeply um, he's breathed Shakespeare in. Right. And how very, very important those works were to him. 
so cool. And I think, like, I think there's also, there's this great, uh, there's this great section of theory of moral sentiments where um, Adam Smith is uh, talking about the perils of ambition. And I don't have the book open in front of me and I'm not going to try and quote Smith. Memory. Um, but he talks about the perils of ambition and he does so essentially by summarizing the plot of Macbeth um, and using in that summarization some of the very same words that Shakespeare sort of highlights in Macbeth, including that image of, of leaping over something and kind of crash landing, uh, falling and crash landing on the other side, which is a very famous uh, speech from Macbeth. Um, and, and and I just I find that fascinating, right? And it's 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 really neat to to see that happening and to think about the way that to go back to your earlier question, right? Why do we care about pre Enlightenment works? Why do we care about pre Adam Smith stuff if we're classical liberal? Well, we care about it because Smith cared about it an awful lot, right? Mm-hmm. This stuff was important exactly. to him. This stuff was important to all the people uh, um, whom all of the more modern people about whom we care about a lot. So we should probably care about it too. Yeah. I mean, Smith thought Shakespeare was relevant, so maybe we should be giving <laughs> Shakespeare another look just based on that yeah, alone, I mean, if not for all of the arguments you're making here today. Right. So I, I hate the sort of the, the relevant thing. He's irrelevant, right? He's important, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, so... Now I'd like to take you through a list of Shakespeare's plays and get your take on what messages liberals can get from them and potentially how they can be significant to issues that we're facing today. Um, so you've already talked a little bit about a bunch of these, um, but maybe just dig into them a little bit more. Um, the first one I have written down is Henry V. Okay, so I teaching Henry V is one of one of my favorite things. I really I, I enjoy teaching the play. I think it's. Um, I think it's a great meditation on leadership um, and on uh, sovereignty and on the nature of monarchs and the political process. Um, I think uh, I think it's a play that's enormously interested in how a nation becomes a nation. Um, there are all these uh, you know wacky comic scenes with uh, Irish soldiers and Scots soldiers and Welsh soldiers all sort of fighting and arguing and, and being being amusing about one another's accents um, in, in uh, <laughs> King Henry V's army as they go to conquer France. And by the end of the play, that kind of motley group of, of you know, of, of local and, and linguistic difference has kind of welded together um, through through war, right? Through smashing the French and reclaiming their territory and become something of a united, uh, a united, shall we say, kingdom, um, <laughs> to coin a phrase, right? <laughs> right? And, and I think that's, I think that's really interesting, right? And we can, we can have a lot of qualms about nation building through war. I certainly do. Um, I don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm prescribing that um, as nation building, but we can also say that that is the way that a lot of nations have been built. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and tangling with that is I think important. And I don't think that the play is single noted 
on the question of whether war is a good way to go about these things. There are incredibly um, painful uh, speeches about the horrors of war um, and about about what will happen when, as Hal says, he unleashes his sleeping sword, right, and goes to take France, right? Be careful what you ask me to do, because once you ask me to do it, I'm not going to be able to stop. Right. We, we have to go all of the way through until this is until this is done. Right. Um, wow. That's really I kind of sent it to down my spine. <laughs> uh, Richard the third. <laughs> so I, what did I say about Richard the third in print ever? Um, so Richard the third is a fascinating play. It's a really good one about the problems of succession. Right. Um, my, my graduate advisor, uh, Richard Stryer, um, of whom I am enormously fond, uh, and who wrote a great book called the unrepentant Renaissance, which you should all go read. Um, but, uh, his, what he liked to say about Richard the third was that his problem was he didn't kill enough people, right? You think the problem with Richard third is like, he's this insane killing machine, but the problem is he has so many close relatives who are competing for the throne and he just doesn't get through them all. Right. Um, and, and secure his place on the throne. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what more to say about that, except, I mean, Richard III is a great, it's a great example of you know, some of the problems with the institution of monarchy. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty good message. <laughs> uh, Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth. Uh, we just did Macbeth in One Fell Swoop in October because, you know, I can't resist an appropriate timing. Um, I think, I think I, I'd repeat the sort of the, the connection with, um, Adam Smith and Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments and other, uh, enlightenment and classical era, uh, cautions about ambition, right. And, and the dangers of excessive ambition. Um, I think also that there are, um, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful example of how having a, a bad human at the head of a nation causes problems throughout the whole nation, right? And Shakespeare does this mm-hmm. this often. It's 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 a, a trope in his works, and it's it's a, it's a long standing literary trope going back certainly at least medieval and probably well before that where the the sins of the the king and the 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 bad behavior of the tyrant are um sort of worked out in the sufferings of the people and worked out also in a in a disordered natural world right so Macbeth is on the throne and horses are eating each other and you know comets are shooting through the sky and witches are appearing and everything is going very very badly right in Scotland and then then we have this this brief scene where we have an image of the, the English king at the time, Edward the Confessor, who's healing his people, right? He's going out among them to, to touch them uh, for the king's evil, to, to cure them of, of a disease called scrofula by laying on his hands, right? Um, and it's, it's this, um, in a way, it's a, it's a dream of what can happen if you have a great leader or at least a good leader, or a leader who is a good person versus the fear of what happens when you have one who is not, right? 
Um, what about King Lear? Well, King Lear, <laughs> King Lear has really good political advice for everybody, which is if you are king, don't divide your land up into into three pieces and then change your mind and divide it in two between two people who hate you and expect that it's going to be fine. Um, Why not? <laughs> that sounds great. Well. Um, I think. I think. Uh, so King Lear, King Lear is full of warnings for parents and for kings. Um, the the largest of which is you cannot expect to give up your political power and maintain the trappings of influence, right? You can't expect that once you give up the political hold that you have over people, that they will continue to kowtow to you and treat you well. Um, and indeed, they don't. Um, mm -hmm. But also, um, so Lear, unlike some of Shakespeare's other bad kings, um, Lear has this epiphany when he's out in the storm, right? He's he's brought to his very lowest point. He has gone from being, <clears throat> excuse me, he's gone from being king to being naked, unattended except by uh, a madman or someone he believes is by unattended except by his fool and someone who he believes is a madman um, out in the storm, uh, driven away by by his daughters, um, cut off from the the one daughter who does love him. He's cut himself off from. He's at his absolute lowest point. Right. He's down to the point where, as he says, what a poor, bare, forked thing is man. Right. There's just it, we're like a radish. Right. We're just like a, a walking, a walking plant. There's there's nothing to us. There's nothing glorious to us. And he he stands out in the storm and he looks at his his poor fool and he looks at the madman and he says, I have taken too little care of this. I haven't thought about the people in my kingdom who needed care and who needed support and who needed help and who needed a king to do the kingly things and who needed a king to keep a kingdom in some kind of order and to keep the institutions in some kind of order so that their lives could be in some kind of order and so that they wouldn't be forced out into the storm wandering naked and afraid. I have taken too little care of this. And in that moment, right, which I've argued um, is a moment where he awakens to a kind of a, a Smithian understanding of sympathy, right? He's finally put himself into the position of his fellow man, right? He has this awakening. And so he, he dies, but he dies a better person. He dies understanding the enormous mistakes that he made, right? And he dies having healed his relationship with with Cordelia, right? And and possibly having left England in in, in better hands uh, than than he initially consigned it to. Uh, what about Measure for Measure? So Measure Measure for Measure is interesting because Measure for Measure is. Um, a very complicated play. I think it's a very difficult play to read. It doesn't, it doesn't read super well, I think. Um, and uh, so it's, it's very challenging. Um, it's not performed super often. 
um, much of the action of the play turns on uh, Angela's decision to enforce a law that everybody had been ignoring about uh, fornication, right? And and really to sort of prosecute people for fornication and condemn them to death for it, right? Which they hadn't been doing. It was like on the books, but it was ignored, right? And we can, right, we could have a long, long classical liberal discussion about laws that are on the books that we ignore. And and everybody's like, well, it's okay that they're on the books because we basically ignore them and it's, it's like fine, right? We've all agreed not to pay attention mm-hmm. to those laws. Well, Shakespeare's Measure for Measure is a really great cautionary tale about maybe why it's important to get those laws off the books. Right. Because since you never know who's coming up next. Right. And you never know how they're going to be swayed by political interest groups around them or by their own proclivities. Right. You don't know what they're going to decide to enforce. And they might darn well decide to enforce stuff that we've generally agreed is not worth enforcing. But all of a sudden you can't eat ice cream on a Wednesday in Oklahoma or whatever. Right. Um, and, and then you have a real problem or in the case, or in the case of, uh, of measure for measure, right. You can, uh, you can be, uh, condemned to death for fornication. Um, it's even more interesting. Well, no, I'm not going to get into the history of marriage. That's, 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 uh, that's, that's another podcast. And in the play, Right. It's not clear. The guy who has been locked up for fornication says, I actually sort of thought it was legal because this I'm engaged to marry her. We're promised to each other. We said in front of witnesses that we were going to marry each other. That constitutes a marriage. And indeed, sometimes in Shakespeare's time, that did constitute a marriage. And sometimes in Shakespeare's time, that didn't constitute a marriage, right? So it's a play really about, it's a play that's very much interested in good laws, in clear laws, right? In legal clarity, in legal probity, right? And in in getting bad laws off the books before they can do real damage, I think. Oh, I love that. That's so interesting. Um, what are you doing measure for measure on your... <laughs> I don't know. Good question. Uh, on one good fell question. swoop. I might just pop I'll in for that one. Now, I, now I, that I, never... I got myself all, all worked up about yeah. it. Uh, Othello. Othello. Um, so I think... I don't want to wade into to waters that are that are too dangerous here. I think um, a fellow like Merchant of Venice, right, are and uh, Taming of the Shrew, right, are are three plays that are really really hard to teach right now because they are incendiary uh, in terms of uh, issues of race, religion, and gender. Mm. But, um, and I'm not going to, I'm not trying to sort of, you know, paint Shakespeare as some great 21st century bastion of, you know, <laughs> liberal sort of morality or anything. Um, but we, I want to come back here to what I said about, about Shakespeare being so good at sympathizing with humans. I think one of the things that he does in each of those three very difficult, very challenging plays for modern readers 
is that he brings a real humanity to individuals who it would be very, very easy for him to have just leaned on stage traditions um, and stage stereotypes, right? Othello is a person, right? He's also a representative of a race and, and is treated not well as a representative of the race, of that race. Shylock is a person. He's also a representative of a religion and is treated badly as a representative of that religion. Kate is a person. She's also a woman, right, who is treated badly as a representative of that gender, right? And and there's plenty of stuff. If you want to go through those plays and pick out, like, the, the nasty stuff that characters say about Othello or about Shylock or about Kate, there's plenty, right? But I think that the more things that you've read from the period when Shakespeare is writing, the more that we're able to see the effort that he puts in. And it's an incomplete effort. I mean, look, we've all, uh, it's, you know, it's 2023. I think everybody's looked around and realized that their own efforts are incomplete, right? Um, it's an incomplete effort, but the effort that he's taken to, to humanize these people who are enormously different from him and enormously different from his context, right? And, and he's, he finds again and again the things in all of his characters that make them most human. And I think that that's an enormously important lesson for, for uh, classical liberals and, and for, you know, humans. Mm-hmm. True. Uh, so I've grouped the last one uh, uh, as two together, and that's, I'm going to butcher the name, but... <laughs> Uh, Coriolanus and Julius Caesar. Please correct my pronunciation. Well, I, I think, I mean, I, I always say Coriolanus, but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that varies. Um, my, my Latin's not great. So um, I'm sure there's a Latinist somewhere out there who's like, oh, no. Ah, um, sorry. So, so Shakespeare is um, enormously interested in the Roman Republic, um, and particularly in the the fall of the Republic and, you know, the the rise of the Roman Empire and and the sort of the back and forth that happens there. Um, And so I think that these, these, both of these plays are enormously interesting and useful if you want to look for uh, moments where the voice of the people becomes uh, a matter of political importance, but also a matter of political concern. Um, uh, Shakespeare um, and and his contemporaries were were simultaneously really interested in the people having a voice and terrified of what happens when the people have a voice. And I think, again, this feels like a very 21st century kind of a thing, right? Um, we're all uh, we're all really interested in the popular voice and we're all really, really terrified these days of what that popular voice might say. And that that's, that's something I think that's very familiar to readers of Shakespeare. Um, in Julius Caesar, for example, the, um, the poet Cinna, 
is hauled off for execution um, by by a bunch of people in the streets, um, even though he says to them, I'm not the conspirator Cinna, I'm the poet Cinna. And they say, well, you know, it doesn't, we need to haul somebody named Cinna off for execution. So off you go. Right. Um, <laughs> which is funny and also horrifying. Right. Um, and then in, in Coriolanus, you know, this, this great uh, military hero is forced to kind of go out among the people and strip himself mostly naked and show his battle scars and plead for votes and, and lower himself in, in, in that way and like expose himself in an immodest way that, that sits very poorly with him. And, and again, I think they're, they're fascinating ways to think about, um, you know, not only Rome, and not only the politics of, of Shakespeare's day, but to think about our politics. I mean, in some ways, right, Shakespeare's Roman plays are more relevant. If we're looking for relevance, that his Roman plays are in, in some ways more relevant to our own political context than they were to his, right? Um, because they are so much about um, popular voice and appealing to the populace and trying to get the votes and trying to, to sway the people to your side. And then what happens uh, when that goes horribly wrong, right? Well, I feel a lot smarter after all <laughs> that. So thank you so much. <laughs> I'm going to say all this like at the next party I go to and sound really smart. So I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so the last question I have for you before our formal wrap up is off the top of your head, are there other pre-enlightenment writers other than Shakespeare that you think liberals should pay more attention to? I mean, so many. Um, oh, let me think. Um, we don't read enough Chaucer. Um, Chaucer is somebody else who's enormously interested in human beings being human and doing stuff. Um, we've had some some nice uh, coverage on uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales on the Reading Room blog at the Online Library of Liberty at Liberty Fund recently. So so those are those are fun to look at. I think Chaucer doesn't get read as much because um, people are, are scared of Middle English, but they shouldn't be. It's not that hard. Um, you can also get modern English uh, translations of, of Chaucer, and that's fine, too. Um, I think, uh, I mean, Milton, right? We, uh, the, I should have said Milton first, but I'll say him a bunch uh, and, and mention him twice, right? Once for his political writings and once for his poetic writings, right? So he, I, I was actually astonished uh, when I got to graduate school and I was like, wait, Milton wrote political stuff? I didn't realize that. I thought he just did Paradise Lost, right? Because I was coming out of an English department, right? Um, and so there, the, we, we, there are like two very different Miltons depending on whether you're coming out of an English department or whether you're, you're doing sort of political theory stuff. Um, and, and he's enormously influential and important in, in both places. And there's overlap in the thought in both places, unsurprisingly, since the same guy is doing the writing. Um, but his Areopagitica, if you're interested in uh, a free speech and a free press, it's not a perfect work, but it's certainly a work uh, that you have to look at. If you're interested in free press and you haven't read Areopagitica, I don't even know what you're doing. Um, you got to start there. Cool. Um, and, and Paradise Lost is fascinating 
for thinking about things like free will um, and comparing uh, Milton's version of uh, satanic demonic politics with the politics of Milton's own time, uh, which is always uh, good fun for a cocktail party. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <I'd> say so. <laughs> we go to the funnest parties, don't we? <laughs> There's so many, right? I mean, there's there's Dante, there's there's uh, Marie de France, and all of these these great sort of uh, Arthurian uh, romances, which I was just talking about recently with somebody, uh, which I think might be kind of important for thinking about, uh, you know, what it means to be to be a warrior, right? What it means to be a warrior coming home, right? There's uh, there's Beowulf. Right, which which is um, spectacular, is interesting about kingship, has one of the most beautiful laments for a lost son that I've ever read, um, but but is is enormously about the the importance of um, the uh, of political leaders for the you know for the constitution of of a people and for the protection of a people and what happens when that goes awry. You know, um, so those are a couple I could, I mean, there's, there's the Bible as well. There's a couple of things in there are worth looking at a couple stories about politics, right? Uh, one Samuel eight is a big one, right? But the whole sort of King David, um, King Saul, uh, King Samuel kind of stretch of the Hebrew Bible, I think is enormously important and interesting for people who, who want to think about, about politics. Thank you so much for that. So we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's try and bring the conversation full circle, put a finer point on exploration of the topic. So let me ask you, Sarah, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why liberals should read Shakespeare? Um, again, going to rephrase that question for, I know you had it written down. I'm going to rephrase it though. And what can liberals get <laughs> from reading it. Shakespeare is what I'm going to say. I'm not going to yeah. I think I think we all get too much finger wagging about what we should read. And and Shakespeare is something that gets more finger wagging than most. So I'm not going to wag a finger and say that you should read Shakespeare. I am going to say that if you do read Shakespeare, especially if you do read Shakespeare after listening to this podcast, I hope that it's um, with an ear for the things in Shakespeare that speak to our shared humanity um, across time and across space. Um, and the things in Shakespeare that explore deep political questions, right? And I'm gonna add one to that that we didn't actually talk about here today, but also um, with an ear towards um, Shakespeare's representation of the economic, um, which I think is, is interesting and important. Um, in the unrepentant Renaissance, uh, Richard Stryer makes a, a really nice point that in plays like Comedy of Errors, um, there's this whole mercantile world that's going on that nobody's really talking about. Comedy of Errors is full of merchants trading and engaging in trade, and things are going along just swimmingly until uh, the the sort of the, the comic catastrophes of the play kind of turn everything on their head, right? But there's this this lovely functioning market. Right, uh, which is is something that we ought to ought to look for and, and ought to be aware of and, and ought to celebrate, especially um, in the face of people telling us that literature doesn't like free markets and doesn't like the things that that classical liberals care about. 
True. Sarah Squire, I had so much fun talking with you today. Thank you so much for being here. It is always a treat to talk to you, Sabine. I have so much fun and you ask the best questions. Um, and you remind Thank me of you. stuff that I wrote that I completely forgot that I'd written. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> it, is, it is always a delight. Thank you very much for having me. Thank and thanks to ILS. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Wilkenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.